Thanks again for being here. This is cool. I love this because I get to talk to all my favorite professors. I, I'm jealous. <laughs> I, I want my own show. You should start it. You can come. Well, you can be the first because uh, you had we'll, the idea. We'll, we'll talk afterwards. We'll talk afterwards. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Zach Hiley Show. Today, I have the honor of being with Dr. Oxman. So, Dr. David Oxman is a critical care doctor and associate professor of medicine here at Jefferson, as well as the program director for the Critical Care Medicine Fellowship. He went to medical school at Temple, where he also completed his residency in internal medicine. He completed four fellowships, which is unusual, I think, four fellowships in infectious diseases at Tufts, surgical critical care at Harvard, medical critical care at Hahnemann, and medical ethics at Harvard. He's currently the ethics and professionalism thread director in a student group led by Dr. Oxman, where he had, where we, uh, I also had the personal luxury of being in a student group led by Dr. Oxman, where we had discussions around being medical students and our hospital experiences. Welcome, Dr. Oxman. Zach, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. So, we usually start these episodes by talking about statistics, statistics around your specific specialty, critical care, and then if you have any insights or thoughts around these, you can let me know. Okay, so the median attending physician salary across the U.S. is $339,000, while critical care is $366,000. The average hours worked per week across the U.S. is 51 hours per week, while critical care is the winner at 67 hours per week. 59% of all U.S. attendings are happy compared to 53% of critical care attendings. 40% on average with burnout at 56% in critical care. 41, when physicians were asked across America, would you choose this same specialty again? Generally, the average was 41%, uh, while critical care was 44%. The step two score average of, is 246 across America, with critical care being 247. Any thoughts, anything jumping off the top of your head from those statistics? Whenever we talk about critical care, the first thing we have to remember is that it's a very heterogeneous specialty. There are many different pathways to critical care. You can become a critical care specialist through internal medicine, through anesthesia, through emergency medicine, through surgery. And each one of those uh, careers are very different, uh, different training pathways, different work environments. Uh, so when the first thing I react when I hear those numbers um, is that that's a conglomeration of many different types of work experience. Mm. So in your experience, do you think the numbers are higher for you personally or lower in whichever one you want? To and, then there's, and then there's obviously, and this is true of many specialties, the academic versus uh, private practice mm. divide. There's the regional um, you know, variations as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think they're, they're, they're ballpark yeah. numbers. Yeah. So, so just to be clear, because I didn't know this either. So you can go from surgery to critical care. You can go from internal medicine to critical care. Can you go from like pediatrics to critical care? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I forgot wow. pediatrics. Wow. So critical care is not a residency program. Yeah. It's a fellowship, yeah. right? So you have to have a primary specialty first. Yeah. Uh, as we'll talk about later, I mean, critical care as a separate discipline is relatively new. I mean, really since the 19, I think, 70s and early 80s, critical care units themselves didn't really start till wow. the 1960s, early 70s. Um, 
And uh, there, there are some countries, I believe in, for example, Europe and some other countries, you can go into a critical care training program right out of medical school. But in the, um, in the United States, it's uh, a residency first, your mm-hmm. primary residency pathway, whether that's medicine, pediatrics, or anesthesia, and then a subspecialty in critical care. I see. Okay. And that may change, of course, where you're practicing as an attending based on your previous experience, whether it was the pediatrics or internal medicine or surgery. Right, exactly yeah. right. So if you're, uh, usually if you're a pediatrician, you spend time exclusively in the um, pediatric ICU. Uh, if you're in a community setting, you might be doing both surgical critical care and medical yeah. critical care in a quaternary or tertiary center. You're usually um, in um you know, one or the other. I should also mention uh, neurologists also become oh, yeah. become uh, neurointensivists as well. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So let's get right into it. I want to talk about your your other stuff in your career because sure. I think it's really interesting, especially your ethics. But let's start with kind of what the majority of people want to hear about is what is critical care? So <clears throat> I think critical care, you know, when you think about specialties, right, they're sort of defined by either a patient demographic mm-hmm. An, an anatomical uh, area. Yeah. Uh, critical care, I think, is interesting. I guess it's kind of like emergency medicine. It's defined by a practice location, right? Um, specifically, the intensive care unit. Uh, not to say that critical critical care can happen in many different settings, but um, primarily critical care specialists spend their time in the intensive care mm-hmm. unit. So... Critical care, I guess, if you wanted the definition, would be um, a physician who specializes in, in caring for the critically ill or people who are facing life-threatening illness. And there are different ways you can define mm-hmm. that, usually by organ system failure of one kind or another. Mm. And what was your journey to critical care? What was your journey to this? <laughs> well, fel- other than the four million my, fellowships you did. I, you know, uh, my journey to medicine in general, was a little bit um, unusual. And then I think to critical care was probably a little bit Let's unusual. Okay. So, yeah, I, I, I was not a science guy. Uh-huh. I was a humanities guy. Uh, when my college roommates hear that I ended up in medical school, they, they, they can't believe it. Really? Or they, yeah. So I, I, took, I took two science classes in college, uh, Man in Nature and Man in nature? What is that? How to survive in the wilderness? <laughs> no, no, it's like uh, science classes. For people oh, who don't want to take got it. Classes. I see. Okay, good, good, good. And, and then um, spent some time figuring, trying to figure things out, and eventually ended up in uh, post-bac and uh, went from there to medical school. And I didn't start medical school until I was 29. Wow. What were, what, what? What led you to medical school? What is it the time when you were spent figuring out? Was it an event? Was it an experience? Was it a volunteer thing? Oh, man, how long do you got? Uh, <laughs> I, I got mean, all the time in the world. I, I, I mean, I think several things Several things came together. I think one, I, first and foremost, I was looking for uh, something very compelling and meaningful to do with my life, a calling, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, I think I was also... Becoming more interested, more interested in science, but also, you know, humanism and science, which I think medicine is the, you know, the ultimate expression mm-hmm. of humanism through science. 
And then, uh, you know, the personal factors too, you know, like uh, you also look like, okay, well, you know, it'd be nice to have a job that you like and is actually remunerative and, you know, um, and what could be better than medicine? It's, 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 I like that you say this too, because it's, because it's the non-traditional pathway, which I think is becoming more and more popular. I didn't start med school till I was, uh, how old am I now? 28, I, 24. Right. Um, so, and I took two years off, which is the mm. average now. I think the average age of a starting medical student is 25, right? I, I don't know, I but. I think it's 25. I fully support the non-traditional path. Yeah. I mean, not, not, there's also a place for people yeah. who, who knew from the time they were, you know, six years old yeah. and they wanted to be a doctor, not to knock them. That, that definitely was not my path. So you're in medical school at 29. Mm. How do you get to, because you do an internal medicine residency, mm-hmm. right? Did you think in medical school critical care or did you think in medical school medicine? I think the first choice was, do I want to be a surgeon? Do I want to be an internist or something else? Yeah. And I was definitely drawn to internal medicine. I, I think like most people are drawn to internal medicine through, you know, the you, you kind of find your, your people, Right, and you find what you like to. I, I, I remember. I think everyone liked their surgery uh, rotation. I remember liking it, but at the same time, liking it and really feeling like I have to do this is very different. Mm-hmm. And I just enjoy the intellectual challenge of uh, medicine. I also enjoy the sort of um, humanistic parts mm-hmm. of internal medicines. So that that was that was a pretty easy decision uh, to go into internal medicine. From there, um, I didn't really know. I think I, I found people that I liked and admire in infectious diseases. I think infectious diseases is a very compelling specialty, but also just a compelling thing to, to study uh, because of its, uh, not only the medicine, but the social aspect of, in, of infectious diseases. So I sort of settled on that. Um, but I also enjoyed my time in the ICU very much as well. And I had this vague idea that somehow, some way, I would combine them, but um, I had to figure out later how to do that. So was it, again, deciding these infection diseases, was it just kind of through your rotations on your internal medicine? You said, you know what, I love these ID docs. This is kind of who I want to be. Um, I think it was partly that, partly is like if you had to give me an internal medicine textbook and say, read about something, uh, that was the that was the the chapter that I or the section I turned to first. I just found I found that the most the most interesting. Got it. So you're in your infectious disease fellowship and then do you get interested in critical care during the infectious disease fellowship? Uh, before I start my infectious disease fellowship, I, I worked as a hospitalist oh. and I had a unique setting where I spent a lot of time actually in the ICU as wow. a hospitalist. And I was like, oh, I, I really like this. It didn't, didn't make me not want to do infectious mm-hmm. diseases, but it made me want to uh, really find some way to combine the, t- the two. Got it. So, so we go from um, IM residency. Mm-hmm. To hospitalist, mm-hmm. to infectious diseases fellowship. Mm-hmm. What's next? Uh, so then I had to convince my infel- uh, my infectious disease fellowship uh, program director that I could take a year off and do a critical care fellowship. Wow! And for weird reasons, it was a surgical critical care fellowship, yes. which we can is not <laughs> it's not the typical pathway for an internist. Be- uh, but uh, I had to be in a certain city and I, I had see. this opportunity at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So I did that. 
And that was great. Yeah. And then um, I stayed on uh, in Boston working as kind of combining infectious disease consultation and surgical critical care. Wow. I, I was attending in the trauma ICU and doing infectious diseases. Wow. Yeah, interesting combo. And uh, and then because of the unusual path I took, and this is this is getting sort of deep into the weeds of how like uh, weeds. Board, board certification yeah. works in critical care, I had to complete a medical uh, critical care fellowship for to get a board certification. Right, because the pathway is that. Uh, if you're a surgeon or an anesthesiologist, yeah. you can do a surgical critical care fellowship mm -hmm. and get board certified. Yeah. But that doesn't work for a medicine person. And and it's, it's actually a good reason because it's, it's different. It's very different. So I went back after being an attending for two years, yeah. went back and did a medical critical care fellowship, which was mm -hmm. great at Hahnemann, um, and, then, and then took it from there. Wow. So you've done all these fellowships. Mm -hmm. Where does the ethics come in? Uh, so, again, I said at the outset, I'm yeah. sort of a humanities yeah. guy. And so medical ethics and medical humanities was something that always interests me. Um, and, you know, I wrote during medical school and residency. And then when I was a hospitalist in Boston, I actually had the opportunity to do a fellowship while I was working. You know, it's like mm -hmm. a part-time fellowship at Harvard in uh, bioethics. Oh, cool. So this was while you were an attending in infectious diseases? No, no, no. Oh. This is before when I was a hospitalist. Before? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was a hospitalist, and um, I had this opportunity uh -huh. to um, um, do this ethics uh, fellowship part-time. It was, it was geared towards yeah. uh, working physicians and nurses and uh, people in the medical. Actually, no, there were some lawyers, too, who sort of were working and also doing this fellowship yeah. at the same time. How difficult were all these different fellowships? Was there one that was way more <laughs> difficult than all the others? Or um, well, they all have their challenges, yeah. um, and then you also start like, you know, your wife looks at you like, okay, because <laughs> this is tra how many enough. years of training is this going through? Well, le less than a neurosurgeon. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> you know, I, I three years of internal medicine, uh, two years of ID, yeah, and. Two years of critical care. I don't yeah. count the ethics because I, I was uh -huh. working during that. So I guess it's the same as a neurosurgeon. Well, so that's yeah. seven years. But it's also the same as, you know, someone wants to be an interventional yeah. cardiologist. Yeah, yeah. Right? No, wow. Yeah. Did you find yourself being pulled to, because now you're solely, right, a, yeah. a critical care doctor as well as you'd have your ethics uh, commitments right. here as well. Was it during these fellowships where you found, you know what, critical care seems to be the one there I'm fit best at? <laughs> Yes. Uh, I mean, I still love infectious diseases. And there are some people who, uh, first of all, there are very few people that do infectious disease and critical care, but it's a growing number. And there's some people that are able to continue to combine practicing both specialties. Mm -hmm. um, I practice a lot of infectious diseases in the ICU. Mm -hmm. And I always think of myself as an ID guy mm -hmm. just because of the way I think and, you know, uh, there's a certain spent two years there. I mean, yeah, right? there's yeah. a certain approach. I think infectious disease people have, but I don't. Were do, you in the woods? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but I don't. I don't. I don't do uh, consultations, and I don't have a clinic. And frankly, you know, there's a lot of aspects of infectious disease that I just can't keep up on. Like, yeah. You know. Was there any aspects, kind of, when you're making this decision? Because it's a decision, right? right? To kind of drop out of the ID attending field. Yeah. Even if you're thinking about it during the ICU. Right. Was it uh, lifestyle? Was it uh, just? It wasn't as academically or scholarly interesting? Um, 
One is that it's very hard to find a job in both, mm. right? So, for example, most internal medicine people who do critical care do it through the combined pulmonary critical care fellowship. Yeah. Which is an interest. That's kind of a fluke of American, the way critical care developed in the United States. But that's like 80% of internal medicine people who are, are certified mm. in critical care. So those people can, you know, finish their fellowship and open up a job listing and find a job, you know, oh, uh, combining outpatient pulmonary and inpatient mm -hmm. critical care. It's very common. Yeah. I, I could not do that, right? Because that job doesn't really exist. You mm -hmm. have to kind of make that job. I and I made that job for two years. But then when I moved to Philadelphia, it becomes very hard to make that job for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. And also, frankly, I think I was becoming just more focused on critical care and, and this is, you know, personally, it, it's, uh, uh, I, I, the lifestyle worked a little bit better for me and also, um, <laughs> renumeratively, yes, it was, yes. it was better. Yeah. But I don't think I would have done that had I felt it was just yeah. those things all lined up. And these are good things to talk about. I, yeah. hate, I hate the taboo around <laughs> finances and things mm. like that. Cause I mean, these are things we're going to be dealing with for the rest of our life. I wish there were more courses in medical school about it's these true. kind of things. I don't know. But I, it's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast, yeah. right? One of the reasons I, the first statistic I say is salary. Because these are important things that are going to have an impact on your life and your family. And I wish it was talked about more, I guess. Yeah, and I, and I, I think that stuff should be, you know, dragged out of the closet, so to yeah. speak. I also think it's important to put it in the right context course, yeah. for medical students, number one, because, you know, Obviously, money isn't everything, but also the statistics are, can be very misleading because yes. there's extremely different um, uh, pay based upon your particular clinical situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, as an academic intensivist, I bet you there's some private practice infectious disease doctors that make more money than mm -hmm, me, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, so I just, you have to take those things with a of grain, course, grain of, of salt. And the cliche, I think, is true as well. You kind of have to do what you love, especially if you're spending 50, 60 hours a week doing these things, right? I would agree with that. I think everyone, someone once explained to me that your choice is like, it's um, it's like a stew. You're creating, like some people want a little bit more pepper, yeah. some people want a little bit more salt. And everyone has a slightly different combination of love of that thing and personal considerations that is right for them. Yeah. And the, the awesome thing that I've learned speaking to more attending doctors as well is when you're in this position, your schedule isn't cookie cutter, right? Your schedule isn't the exact same thing as other attending intensivists across the country, right? Uh, you can do academics, you can do research, you can do more oh, yeah. outpatient, less outpatient, right? Oh, it's right? very different. Absolutely. Like... Yeah, that's another thing I think medical students have to recognize is that two people in the same specialty can have vastly different schedules and salaries and work environments. Yeah, and this is something I had no idea. For example, I thought when I first started medical school, everyone who was a surgeon was in the OR five days a week. Right. That is not true at all. Right, exactly. Not true. Exactly. It's crazy. Exactly. So what is your schedule like? Maybe you could talk about an average week. Right, so for an academic intensivist, um, usually the way you work is you're on service. When I say on service, meaning an attending in the ICU mm -hmm. a week or two weeks at a time. Sometimes there's a weekend mm -hmm. and sometimes there's not. Um, interestingly, I would say on average in academics, a full-time FTE 
academic intensivist probably works only about 26 to 30 weeks in the ICU. And then the rest of the time is the, is spent um, in their administrative, research, educational activities. Mm-hmm. And that can be very different than the prior. I, I, for one year while I was, before I joined Jefferson, I worked as a um, private practice intensivist. And you say, well, what's a private practice mm-hmm. intensive? Basically, uh, this was, uh, I was working for a, a, a group that staffed different um Community hospital, ICUs, like the hospital would contract with this group. It's very similar to the way community emergency medicine Mm -hmm. or even some community anesthesia programs work Mm -hmm. uh, where you work for this group and then they contract with community hospitals rather than being directly employed by the community hospital. In any case, uh, and that was a straight up number of shifts a month. Mm -hmm. Like I would work 15 shifts a month or 12 shifts a month. How, or, how many hours or shifts is it? It can vary. I mean, yeah. some of them were like eight, some of them were 12, Got some it. of them were overnight. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, then and so, that way it's very much like an emergency medicine type of uh, No medical students under you during that time? No, actually uh, we had, a, so there's, when I say, when I say community, there's a variation community. You can have a community academic program, uh, right? So uh, a hospital, that it's not necessarily affiliated with a medical school, but has a residency program, mm-hmm. has students from from a local medical school rotate through them. Uh, that would be a community academic program. And one of the hospitals I worked at was like that. I had, I don't think I had students, but I had residents. Got it. So when you have this, so right now, if you have a week or two in the ICU, mm-hmm. is that a week or two a month? Is that And then you just spend the other week or two kind of as an academic research? Yeah, basically. Got it. Yeah. So, and, and what are these other academic, specifically to you, that you're doing? Well, everyone else is obviously different, yeah. right? So there's be some academic intensivists who may be, you know, doing a lot of research, yeah. right? Who they may have grants mm-hmm. and they may even have labs yeah. or they're doing uh, outcomes research and are working with large databases. So uh, that's one thing. I'm, I, I do some clinical research, but I'm, mm-hmm. I would not call myself a, a, a you know, a researcher mm-hmm. per se. Uh, I do. What does an average day then look like? So, so I guess we should split up the days based mm-hmm. on the week. Let's say, what's the average day when you're in the ICU? Right. So great. Uh, come in around seven thirty, mm-hmm. quarter of eight. Uh, talk to my uh, residents and fellow. Um, you know what, what's going on yeah. this morning, uh, and then we start rounding first on our new patients. Uh, rounds uh, probably go from. Well, I try to be quick and efficient. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, rounds probably go from like 8 to 10.30. Nice. Some attendings may yeah. take longer. Um, then we, um, uh, again, and that's if nothing's crashing yes. and burning. And then we, uh, there might be some procedures that have to be done and there are notes that have to be written. And then there's maybe, uh, we have some time to do some teaching and then when there's new admissions and Bing, bam, boom, it's four o'clock and you're doing evening sign out. Mm. And hopefully, you know, as an academic attack and get out of there, not too late. That's not bad. <laughs> that doesn't sound too bad at all. No, it doesn't. That's, that's, that's nice. And then let's talk about like an academic day. Yeah. Say you have a, a teaching day. What right. is a teaching day like? 
you know, I, I joke with my friends who are in the humanities. Yeah. I say a part of my job is like looks like a doctor, and the other yeah. part looks like an English professor, <laughs> right? So I'm sitting in my office, you know, and I'm either working on a manuscript, yes. but then I have to go teach a lecture, yeah. uh, you know, uh, work on some administrative yeah. thing. And 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 frankly, for me, I have a great setup in that it's very flexible. Got it. So yeah. it's kind of whatever the 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 focus of the day is, kind right, of thing. Right. Okay. And the ethics portion is that. Are you are you scheduled for certain times, or do you, are you just kind of pulled in? So, I mean, uh, my interest in clinical ethics is both as a uh, uh, a scholar, yeah. right? I, I, I write on uh, ethics and medicine topics, so I spend a lot of time doing that. Huh. Teaching, yeah, right. Uh, teach uh, a couple ethics courses to students, and always looking mm. to do more on that. And then there's this thing called the uh, ethics consultation service. Mm. So uh, every every major hospital has an ethics consultation service, and it functions, you know, similar to say a cardiology consultation mm -hmm. service. You got a cardiology program yeah. problem, yeah. call it cardiology. You have a a sort of difficult ethical moral dilemma that you may not that has arisen during the practice mm. of medicine that you can't quite define or you need help with. You call it the ethics consultation mm. service. Now, uh, we're not as busy as the cardiology. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. No, because it's a good thing because yeah. it's all volunteer. Yeah. And uh, really, well, Jefferson, it is. We can have a conversation oh offline about that. It, uh, most places there is not, but at Jefferson, it is volunteer. So I have a cadre of very, very dedicated, brilliant clinicians mm -hmm. who help me do ethics consults. Uh, so we may only have a few a month, but sometimes we have calls, mm. and they always seem to come up on Friday afternoon at four o'clock. And there's a, there's a, are you a twenty four hour call for these? Ethics? Yeah, I mean they're very rarely someone yeah. to wake me up at midnight for yeah. an ethics call, but that has happened. So how does it work? So so someone do they put a consult an epic and then call you? Yeah, do they call. That's what they do. Yeah. Wow. And I just and then you meet with your team. Say an issue comes up, right? And then can you just make a decision right there in the moment? You yourself? well, I mean, we can digress. Talk a little bit about how ethics consultation yeah, works. Tell me, tell me. Um, so I, I think the first misnomer about ethics consultation is that there's this secret cabal of people that somehow make decisions for that's the doctors and patients. Right? <laughs> right. No, that's actually the furthest thing from the truth, right? We, we are uh, sort of an analyst and advisor. So uh, most of the times when we get an ethics consultation, uh, doctors or nurses or sometimes even patients have this vague feeling that something is not quite right. Mm. They can't put it into words, but they have this feeling that something is wrong um, and or something needs to be discussed. And we help them put it into words. Yeah. They're actually, you know, four or five main ethical consults that occur in the, in the, in the uh, hospital. And we help them analyze it, look at the, look at the uh, issues involved, mm -hmm. look, look at some of the specifics uh, involved, and then help them arrive at a, you know, sort of ethically and practically workable uh, solution. Sometimes we, sometimes we mediate mm -hmm. with um, conflicts between staff and patients, but ultimately the decision-making is the, is the final say is up to the doctors and the patients. Wow. Could you tell me one or two of these, con you said there's four or five things. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Um, so one of, a, one of the common uh, um, uh, calls for ethics would be um, 
you have a patient who's incapacitated for whatever reason, maybe due to medical illness or due to um, psychiatric disease, and they need a medical procedure, and they don't have the capacity to make the decision. How should you proceed? And that depends a lot upon what the procedure is, mm -hmm. how effective it is, what are the practical implications, so forth. Another one um, uh, might be sort of similar. We, we, we have a lot of patients increasingly who are what we call unrepresented, meaning that sadly they have no one to speak for them when they do become incapacitated. And how do you make decisions about mental care in that situation? Uh, lastly, I think one of the most um, uh, stressful sort of situations for medical professions is what we call uh, non-beneficial care requests, what we used to call medical futility. Um, the patient or the family is asking for something. It, usually this comes up in uh, the realm of life support and mm -hmm. life supporting therapies that the doctors don't think is beneficial. Uh, quote unquote futile and how do you manage that conflict mm. so you just kind of have to I'm interested in diving deeper so so <laughs> someone if a patient's family comes and says something like we want this care to be done mm -hmm. but the doctors the teams you know they've all decided medically and based on you know the, the information that they have in hand that this is not going to help them one mm -hmm. iota right it's mm -hmm. not going to help them do they come to you? Does the patient's family come to you and say, listen, like we want something? Because I'm assuming the doctors would go to the patient and say, patient's family and say, listen, we don't think this is a do. And then I guess this, you come in if the patient's family says, we want something done, we're going to go talk to someone. I, like most ethical problems, I'd say most of the time, doctors are able to resolve these yeah. conflicts themselves through, you know, persuasion, through, um, uh, mediation, whatever. Uh, with the non-beneficial care requests, the ones we most often see is when the stakes are high, usually it's a situation where someone is on life support that with a very poor prognosis uh, for recovery and the team is concerned that uh, it's not only non-beneficial but also causing only pain and suffering. Mm, I see. And can you just give me a little primer? I know this is your life, right? You spend years, maybe even decades <laughs> on kind of these this whole ethics things. But can you just give me a basic primer? As a medical student, as someone who's going to be entering the field mm -hmm. of medicine as a doctor, it's crazy, mm -hmm. soon, um, what do you think about? Is there a step-by-step, step, maybe in this specific situation, right. ethically, that, that you think about? Right, so that's a, that's a great question. I guess another misnomer yeah. about ethics consultation is we just kind of all make it up. Yeah. Like, like we're, <laughs> we're smart, good people, we hear a case, and like, just yeah. Just make the decision. Yeah, yeah. Like, this sounds right, about yeah. right, right. But there's actually a process. As I mentioned, there are several common ethical problems that come up. I would say of the... Uh, Three I mentioned that yeah. constitutes probably about 70%, 80% of wow. ethics consoles in not just our hospital, yeah. but in most hospitals. So there's a process for it. There's literature behind mm. it, right? There's even certification now in clinical ethics, which I can talk about a little bit. Um, so it, it is a discipline and it is not just made up. There is actual process you can actually, you know. Like a well, I don't know about a flowchart, <laughs> but maybe. Yeah. But you could look at an ethics consultation, uh, at least a specialist could yeah. say, oh, that was a good one, mm. that was a bad one, the process was followed. There's a lot of art to it yeah. as well, right? I mean, I won't. you really have to be interested in listening and uh, active listening and 
mediation. Yeah. So there's a lot of art to it, but there, there's definitely uh, more and more a sort of process and discipline to yeah. it as well. Because I mean, just I'm thinking step two questions and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm thinking the first question, you know, when it's something like this case that we were just talking about, you think <clears throat> if you know what the patient wanted, mm-hmm. then you go with that decision, right? If you don't, uh, again, you're gonna you're gonna cut. This is I'm making broad generalizations <laughs> here, of course. That, yeah, that's. Well, um, but I'm I'm saying this because I'm just wondering. I would I, my answer to that would be: Do we really know what anyone really wants? Do oh, you God. do you do you really know what you oh, want? Oh, gee, and, and and is that the answer that you give to the the do, the doctors? I'm just curious. So I'm curious if and if if it's too kind of if these things these answers go too many different paths depending mm. on the scenario. You can say, listen, let's not talk about mm. this. But I'm wondering if because you said there's a kind of a certain way you think about things generally. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can address this specific thing. Mm-hmm. Is there a first question you ask and a second question you ask? I, I mean, again, it depends on it depends on the situation. Yeah. It depends very much on the situation. Okay. Um, I what I always try to uh, focus on is like you. 99 times out of 100 uh the there's a conflict mm. between something and something right either it's a conflict between a patient and a family it's a conflict between two staff members it's a conflict between two goods mm-hmm. you know what what's the conflict so that i guess the first question i try to ask or try to figure out is what is the the nub of the conflict mm, i see and then i guess you start to identify kind of the both sides points of view okay and then maybe you bring your own expertise and say listen here are the here's the benefits and cons of this side of you right and here's the pros and cons of this side of you right i see okay and i'm just wondering as a say as a i am resident mm-hmm. when does it make sense to bring in an ethics consult well I, again i think um what i encourage and and, and when i talk to residents about yeah. this uh you know most ethical dilemmas are really, you know, the purview of just the practicing clinician, right? And they can be managed. It's it's when there's, it's a little bit more complex. Or sometimes you kind of know what you want to do, but you don't want to take that decision completely by yourself. You mm-hmm. want to bring in some other people so you can avoid the possibility of your own blind sides and bias. Yeah. Right. So I that's see. another reason why we get called. Not necessarily because the clinicians don't know what they want to do. They do know what they want to yeah. do, but they want some institutional supports so they can say, you know, look, this wasn't just my decision, but this was Got it, got it. Are there any major medical issues or major major ethical issues, sorry, I misspoke, uh, that you wish more medical students or physicians or residents kind of knew about? I'm thinking yes. like from the four, when we first learned the four basic tenets, right? Autonomy, beneficence, non-malfeasance, and justice. Is there anything like that that you wish kind of we were more aware of? Yes. <laughs> you want to hear? <laughs> yes, please, please. So, uh, and in fact, I, I give a talk to the, yeah, yeah. you might have missed it. I don't know if I was doing it during the internal medicine clerkships, but I give a talk about uh, patient uh, autonomy and conceptions of autonomy. And this is sort of what you were hinting at, right? So the, there is this, obviously, it's the most the sort of most fundamental ethical conflict that we have is between our duty to do the best for the patient, right? That's what we call bene- mm-hmm. beneficence. And our also duty to allow, you know, self determination or patient autonomy. Right. That's the mm. that's the most common conflict. And what I would say is that autonomy is a, is tricky, 
right? Because what people want is very situational and it's often changing and conflicting. And um, people really don't know what they want until the situation arises. Um, so as, as physicians, it's not a simple matter of quote unquote respecting autonomy because respecting sort of suggests something passive like, you know, the patient says they this and you say, okay, yeah, <laughs> right? It's more about facilitating or promoting yeah. and getting to a deeper understanding of what people really want. I can, I can give you some examples. Yeah, that'd be, and I have, I have, I'm just <laughs> thinking while, you're, while you have those examples, I had a patient, I didn't have a patient, I was a medical student with a patient uh, and she was one of the two people I had. And I remember she had critical aortic stenosis, really <laughs> bad aortic stenosis, and she really didn't want to go through with the decision of kind of getting this valve replaced. Mm -hmm. And the question in my head during it ethically was, okay, we have a duty to kind of help this lady, right? She's right. going to have a much better life. She's going to right. be able to walk. She's probably going to live longer right. if this valve is replaced. But she's telling us, um, you know, I don't want it. My question is, how much is pushing too much? How much oh. is, saying, is pushing saying, like, listen, like, like coming every day and saying, you need this, you should get this, this is going to help you, as opposed to, you know, she's made the decision that she doesn't want it. So, I mean, that's a, that's a deep question. I mean, I think in those situations where I assume you're dealing with like a capacitated yeah. person, yep. mm -hmm. you, I, I've put physicians and, and there's clearly something that is highly efficacious and benef beneficial. I think the first thing you want to do is try to on, it's not really ethics. This yeah. is just good doctoring. Okay. It's just like try to get to the root of why she doesn't yeah. want it. Is it some, you know, uh, fear, illegitimate fear? Is it? Is there something else at stake? Why mm. uh, she doesn't want to go with that plan? Yeah. And then uh, you do that, and then you sort of exercise all your soft, mm -hmm. soft power of doctoring, yeah. trying to get. You know, it's no different than trying to get your patients to lose weight. Right? Yeah. It's like try to be encouraging, yeah. you try to persuade, you try to, you know, softly manipulate, yeah. maybe, whatever, yeah. to try to do the right thing. At, at, at a certain point in a capacitated patient, um, we have to accept their decision. Uh, there are situations, though, where I think the idea of capacity becomes very blurry. I'll give mm. you an example. Yeah. A case I always talk about with medical students is the, the, new, um, uh, the patient with a new spinal cord injury. Very tragic situation. A previously healthy person has a new spinal cord injury. They've never imagined living with a spinal cord injury before, right? Uh, they may, in, in their mind, right, in the, the mind of an able-bodied person who could never imagine living in a wheelchair, have come to the conclusion that they wouldn't want to live as a spinal cord patient, that they would rather die. So there you're facing a new spinal cord patient. Literally, their life has been turned upside down mm -hmm. in one day and they or their family is telling you that uh, they don't want to live anymore and say, take them off of life support. You, on the other hand, know that uh, attitudes towards living with spinal cord injury change remarkably from, you know, the first month to the sixth month. Mm -hmm. And most, you know, are very happy to be alive, depending upon, you mm -hmm. know, other factors, but and have quality of life scores similar to, non-spinal cord injury mm. patients. It's hard for us to imagine. So what is your duty as a doctor there? Do you respect autonomy, take them off life support and they die? Or dig deeper and try to promote a deeper 
uh, wish, you know, what's the deeper wish rather than the one that's expressed in that time. Yeah. No, that's a great example. And this is a general question. Again, I'm, I feel like I'm doing broad generalizations. And you don't have to answer it. I don't know if you, it's, I don't know. It, this is public, so his opinions will be on the internet. But what is your opinion as an ethics professional um, on assisted suicide? Well, first thing I would say, yeah. aid in dying. Aid in dying. Is that the best way to say it? Yeah. I don't know. What the, okay, right. aid in dying. We will cut that up. Right. Well, some people do call it assisted suicide, okay. but you sort of. You, you give it a connotation when yeah, you say exactly. assisted suicide. Exactly. Got it, right. got it, got it. Because um, different countries... We're talking about physician yeah. aid and dying. Yes, yep. Right, mm-hmm. right. So, what was the question? What's my personal opinion? What's your on? personal opinion? And, and again, it's hard. <laughs> I know is, is by talking just the past 20 minutes, I know every situation is different. Let, 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 me, let me sort of... Move it around. What's the word? Sort of dodge and weave around yes, that yeah. question and come back to it. Because it matters less what my personal opinion is. Um, I, I think there are very strong arguments on both sides. Um, I think um, having control over the time and means of your death is, in certain situations, extremely um, reasonable. And I think uh, anyone who's had a loved one go through a life-ending illness knows that viscerally. Uh, And why should we be made to go through uh, suffering that has maybe no point. On the other hand, there is the the slippery slope. There is the idea that, you know, uh, there's certain things that just medicine and physicians should not be involved in because of it, what it does to our perception of our, of our of profession. Um, so I think uh, there, there are, Strong arguments on both sides. I think nationally, internationally, there is a movement to recognize um, the role of uh, physician aid in dying in certain situations. And I think, interestingly, this is just this is anecdotal mm-hmm. completely because just from the last couple of uh, ethics classes I've taught with students, is I think there's a generational breakdown on this issue. Mm. Uh, I, again, I, don't, I can't, yeah. I can't yeah, prove yeah. that. But when I bring up, when I, because this is obviously a, a this is a, a like a whole class, a class, my ethics class, some of the, the, the medical, the, over the years, the idea has, uh, why would you not support this is become, seems to me the prevailing view in younger physicians. Mm. Now, some of them may not have given it much thought, yeah. so it may be a sort of off-the-cuff yeah. kind of thing. But I think there's definitely a generational shift in the approach. Yeah, that's, that's really... and Because there are countries that, you know, if you look, I think it's Amsterdam or certain... Not Amsterdam, not the country. Netherlands or something like that. You know, they have... They, I think there are laws towards it. You know, if yeah. a patient says... Canada. Yeah, Canada. It's interesting. I just wonder how these, how these things are going to change. Okay, Ethics discussion, we'll uh, put that we'll to put the that side, side for right now. Because I, I think it's really interesting. I'm yeah. so happy to have you because I right. think it's great. But let's go back to critical care. Right. What is the best thing about being a critical care doctor? Oh, there's so many great yeah. things about being <laughs> critical care. Um, I mean, look, I may be biased. I, I love what I do. Um, not to say I don't have yeah. like bad days yeah, or, you know, the Sunday scaries yeah. when I yeah. have to go in on Monday and then picking up yeah. a new service. But um, the, the best thing, I mean, I never come home wondering if I 
made a difference. <laughs> my day was productive. <laughs> I mean, some days are more than others, yeah. but I make a difference in so many ways. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, I, you know, a diagnosis or an intervention, and sometimes it's my conversations mm. with patients and their families. So uh, I think the best thing is the impact I can make. Yeah, no, that's great. And of course, the counterpoint to mm. what is the best thing about being a critical care doctor is what is the worst thing about being a critical care doctor? Well, the worst thing, I, I, I mean, it, it can at times be stressful, yeah. but I can't think of a medical specialty that doesn't have its time when it's stressful. Uh, there can be conflict, both interprofessionally, believe mm. it or not. I think, you know, one of the great things about ICU medicine is it's, and maybe I should have mentioned this up top, mm -hmm. is that it's a team sport, mm. right? Like there, I, I can't do everything myself. I have nurses, I have respiratory therapists, I have nutritionists, I have, and there's no really, maybe the operating room, but there's nowhere else in the hospital that has really the kind of interprofessional um, collaboration as the ICU. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much and it's just, great working with all these dedicated professionals. So uh, on the other hand, when you have a lot of people, there's can be a little bit of conflict. Yeah. And managing that conflict can be sometimes difficult. And then there's, of course, the conflict that can occur with patients and families because, mm -hmm. you know, the stakes are high. Is the conflict within the team, like the residents, the nurses, or is the conflict among your peers, like other attendings within that you're the, consulting? Within, the, within, within the, the team, mostly, okay. right? It's fairly collaborative when you bring in a cardiologist or a I mean, just, just think, I mean, like, yeah. if you if you were spending all day working on a project with five of your best friends, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> right? There would still be conflict, and these people are not all your best friends, right? Got it. You have to, different personalities, different ways of looking at things. Yeah, I see. <laughs> so if I gave you $100 million today, tax-free, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. in your bank account, and you do whatever you want with it, right. I'm going to give you four options. Okay. Option number one is you continue practicing full-time exactly what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Option number two is you switch your career a little bit around. You start working part-time, maybe. Mm -hmm. Option number three, you switch careers entirely. Maybe you become an ethics professor at Harvard, mm -hmm. or you become the best uh, tennis player in the world, because <laughs> you can do that now. It can. I, I, I see it in you. Uh, or option number four, you quit entirely and go live on a beach, hang out with right. your family, anything like this? Uh, honestly? Yeah. Number two. Number two. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really, I, I, I would think I, I would probably buy down my time, yes. clinical time yeah. a little bit more, uh, flex up on the ethics. Maybe mm. there are a lot of other experiences, maybe take a sabbatical yeah. or something like yeah. that. If I, you know, I could do that. Although I couldn't do that anyway because of the kids in school. So yeah, yeah I, I honestly, look, I mean, it's the happy inverse of the spinal cord yeah. patient, right? <laughs> right. In that, I don't truly know what I would do mm -hmm. until I had it. Yeah. But I like to think, and frankly, I'm. I believe, although I could change, I yeah. believe that I would not make any major difference uh, changes in my life. Yeah, I see. I see. Why would you bring down the clinical time? Just uh, so I could do other, some yeah. more other things. Got you it. know, Yeah. But I wouldn't stop being a critical care doctor at all. Got it. Okay. Where do you see your future? Where do you see your career going? Where would you like your career? To oh, um, well, they're, they're sort of different. I think the traditional path, and this, again, listen, for medical students, this is hard to, yeah. you know, relate to because they're very much at the beginning of I their career. I think we all think about it. We all are like, we want to be the most successful, the right. best people. We want to have the best careers. So I think a little bit of, and it's, it's probably, I think, 
there's good and bads to it, right? I think you should always plan ahead. Right. But sometimes if you stick to your plan, given variables that are telling and data that's saying, you know, you really shouldn't do this, especially in personal experience, right. you should not stick to it. Um, yeah, that's my mini spiel. Sorry, go ahead. So where? Well, where you, well I yeah. mean, I think it's it's sort of hard to relate to, but uh, what the hell? I'll, 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 I'll mention it. You know, um, is, again, I didn't even know I wanted to be a doctor yeah. and I didn't even know I wanted to be an intensivist. Exactly. But yeah. once I decided that I wanted to be an intensivist and more specifically an academic intensivist, yeah. um, when I envisioned where I wanted to be, it's where I am now. Yeah. So uh, in, a, in a way, I, I'm, I've done what I wanted to do. I, so I want to keep doing more, yeah. more of it. And I think there's a natural... Uh, progression that just as you uh, to want to assume some more leadership, mm-hmm. not for ego per se, but just because you you know you feel like you can affect more people mm-hmm. that way, and you have, feel like you have something to add. So, um, you know, maybe perhaps some more leadership in the in the ethics realm yeah. uh, as far as critical care. Uh, I'm, I'm actually pretty happy with my role right now in, in the university. How did you get interested in? I guess why are you so interested in medical education? Oh well, I think I just I I, I enjoy teaching. Yeah. Maybe that's because I like hearing myself talk. I don't <laughs> I don't know. Um, I I enjoy particularly medical teaching because um, just this it's very much a interactive sort of teaching. It's more like coaching mm-hmm. is teaching. Um, uh, for a lot of it's the way medical yeah. education has, particularly in the clinical sphere. Uh, has has developed over the years, um, so I find that really rewarding. Yeah. I, I like taking complicated concepts that I had to really struggle yeah. with to understand. Yeah, like my understanding of physiology did not come easy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think because of that, yeah, I'm very good at breaking them down and teaching them to uh, to novice learners. Yeah, and I enjoy that very much. Yeah. I enjoy taking a complicated Com, uh, concept and and teaching it to uh, uh, students and residents, uh, so I get a lot of joy out yeah. of that. What was the question? Why do I? Why else do I? That, do you pretty much answered. <laughs> yeah, why interest uh, in medical education? Yeah. I guess how and did I think, you? you know what? Yeah. It's, I'll tell you the other thing. Yeah. It's just so important. Yeah. It's so. I mean, um, who's going to take care of me, <laughs> or who's going to take care of my patients? Yeah. Right. I mean, I, it's about being, uh, being part of this. I guess one thing I want to stress, and I think is if you go back to why I became a doctor, Zach, or why I changed, it, you're, you're, being, you're part of something that's so much bigger than you. You're part of this profession. You're part of this history. You're part of something that will always be there as long as this, right? Yeah. And uh, just like giving back to that and moving it forward and training the next generation of, Physicians is just so important, and it's it's so true. Because I mean, maybe it's just Jefferson. I hope it's across America. Mm. But I, I've had the best experience with teachers and professors and mentors here in medical school than I've ever had in my entire life outside of undergraduate. Outside of I did a postback course as well. Mm-hmm. Outside of everything, I mean, it seems like you guys actually really care and you really want to help us. I hope it's across the country. But just in my personal, again, anecdotal experience at SKMC Jefferson, you guys are. Always here for us. Always, and you specifically have helped, you, me, have helped me out. <laughs> I mean, I'll bring this up because I think it's pro- possibly interesting as well. When I first started this YouTube channel, yeah. when I was talking about things on the internet, <clears throat> I actually pulled you aside yeah. and I talked. Would you mind? I'm going to ask you the question again that I asked you. I think a year ago now, yeah. close to this crazy. 
What do you think about medical students posting things on the internet about their medical education, maybe even about their hospital experiences? So I remember very much when you, when you asked me that, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it. So on the one hand, right, um, what's di- it's no different than you like writing an essay mm-hmm. or uh, publishing an article or writing a novel mm-hmm. about your experience, right? It's the same thing. On the other hand, the medium is different enough that it made me think, is there something about the medium that needs to be considered mm. as well, right? Because it's so immediate. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you're writing a book and like, it could take you years to yeah. get it published. Even if you're posting in a blog, it's yeah. different, right? Um, so um, I, I don't think intrinsically, I mean, first of all, I think it's great, right? <laughs> right? No, I mean, I mean, you can reach so many people. Mm, and like, I love listening to podcasts yeah. as much as yeah. the next guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think sharing doctors, sharing their stories is just interesting and fun, even for uh, non-doctors. So baseline, great. Got it. Yes, yes. Hit me me with the con. No, no, I don't even know if it's a con. It's more of like a consideration kind of con. Is that, um, you know, information just gets out there so quick and it it can be disseminated so large, uh, so, so diffusely what does it mean to be talking about patients' stories in that format, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's very unlikely I'm going to write an essay in the New York Times and my patient is going to pick it up. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah exactly, exactly. Right? But it's possible that yeah. your YouTube video would somehow get to them. Yeah. Or what does it mean to, what does it mean not even for your patients, but for, um, doc, for non-professionals to see you talking in that form? Does that, affect their perception about confidentiality yeah. and, 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 and maybe the seriousness with which yeah. you uh, view your experiences. Yeah. So I'm not, it's not a con, it was yeah. just a consideration because no, the it, medium is different. Yeah, no, and it was really, I love talking to it about this because I think it's really helpful to me because it almost made me think about, wait a second, when I was first doing this a year, two years ago and when I talked to you a year ago, I was like, wait a second, this this thing I'm doing might have an impact on real people, right? Mm-hmm. I guess that's one of the reasons I wanted to do it in the first place. Right. But I never imagined it would right. get to this level. I never right. imagined this many people would watch it. And just thinking about it, it's crazy. And it's it's crazy as medical students, we can actually have, and we do have impacts and real changes on patients' lives, right? right? So it's, it's, it's crazy. A, it's more like a consideration, yeah. you know? I, I, I think since the medium, look, what you're doing in yeah. a sense is no different than like, people in the 19th century, you know, keeping journals mm-hmm. and sharing their experience. But in that, in that essence, it's no different. Yeah. On the other hand, I just think because of the medium, there are things you have to keep in mind about how the, how the medium can view the message. Definitely. Right? Definitely. No, it's, and it's something I'll continue to think about. Right. And I, I definitely stay away from, and we talked about this <laughs> as well, people have gotten in big trouble for this, right? I think right. people have even been kicked out of med school for recording in the hospital, right? Never do that. I'm just saying this almost as a, to two other people who want to start doing things on the internet around, med, around healthcare, right? right? I think you never, obviously patients are number one. Don't record in the hospital. Uh, think about the things before you say them. I'm just trying to think. I think it would be interesting, else. Zach, maybe to interview some patients yeah have them here that'd be, in, that'd be right? interesting have them here with their doctor yeah that's a great that's a great idea <laughs> there you go. i'm gonna write it that'd be amazing right that's the that's the other the other 
side side things that are maybe less spoken about because when we first got to medical school i remember we had uh, a doctor interviewing a patient with right. hiv and aids when we first right. walked in and, and it was a i was like wow right this is so this is so interesting right and i think it's it's important too because we uh i think it's better now mm-hmm. i think back in that maybe it's 40, 50 years ago, in your first two years of med school, you don't have that much actual patient exposure. Right. It's just books, 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 books. Right. Luckily, it's interesting. Who knows? Maybe I'll ask you for advice <laughs> where to do my fellowship in ethics and stuff like that. So is there a common myth or something that people commonly think about some um, ICU attendings or critical care doctors? I, I think the common myth is like we're basically like saving, you know, like every minute is some like life-saving procedure. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, there are those. Yeah. But that's not happening every day. Yeah. Most of the time, you walk into the ICU, you know, you'd find people standing around thinking and talking and trying to make decisions mm-hmm. about what to do in a very sort of, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, organized. Uh, organized, you're right. And there's just enough of yeah. the other stuff yeah. to keep it exciting. Yeah, you're not <laughs> jumping into rooms every second. You right, do it, it happens. It happens, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you see the future of critical care? Do you think there's any major changes? I was just talking to a surgeon the other day, for yeah. example, and they said, you know, they think robotics are going to be oh, the, the future. Question. I'm just wondering if there's any major technological advances in critical care or anything you see that's changed throughout your career uh, that are kind of big things. Um, wow, that's a great question. So I guess I'm not enough of a visionary. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> to think about I, I do, though, have this feeling, often I say, yeah. th- I say this to my students and my trainees, that I know, you know, not even 50 years from now, or maybe not even 100, but maybe 50 years from now, they will look back in horror <laughs> at the barbarities and the coarseness with which we practice medicine in the ICU. Because uh, a lot of the technologies, although they've been tweaked, are, mm-hmm. are you know, like the ventilator. Mm-hmm. Ventilator was around. Positive pressure ventilation has been around since what, the 1950s. Yeah, there's new bells and whistles, but the idea of like putting a tube in someone's throat yeah. and hooking and you know connecting their lungs to this machine, it hasn't changed much. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, technologies to support failing circulation. There definitely have been some improvements, you know, particularly in the cardiology mm-hmm. world when you talk about... Is this about, ECMO you're speaking about? Yeah, there's ECMO and uh-huh. bypass, all those things. Definitely def- definitely been like advancements. Yeah. But in typically in the medical ICU, um, the technologies we use are, yeah. again, sort of old technologies that tweak. I think the, I think the uh, biggest changes have been in monitoring, mm. right? The way that we get data. So I'll give you an example, yeah. right? So you're familiar with an arterial blood gas? Yes. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> so right, this is a, you know, a common, you know, what's most routine laboratory va- investigation that you can do in a critically mm-hmm. ill patient, right? You know, in the ni- even in the 1970s, early 1970s, if you wanted an arterial blood gas, you had to call a vascular surgeon literally to come in and puncture the artery or put a put a catheter in because no one was just puncturing, right? This was like ah. a big deal. Why? Because they were scared of just hitting, just uh, going to arteries uh, as opposed I to think, veins? I think it had to do with the idea of puncturing in the artery, but also the the technology of cannulation was just so mm-hmm. primitive. You were using like metal oh. metal cannulas as opposed to plastic, right? And now that and now uh, that thing has you know become routine. Mm-hmm. Pulse oximetry. 
pulse oximetry really wasn't widespread. And I couldn't be a little bit long until like the late 70s, early 80s. Really? Could you imagine taking care of a critically ill patient without a pulse oximetry, right? So the, I think the greatest advances that have been made in critical care are more in um, uh, monitoring the yeah. necessary therapeutics. The And this is how, how, how deeply technical do you want me to I go? I love deep technical. Okay. So... I think the biggest need yeah. in terms of monitoring advance in critical care is how we assess uh, resuscitation. So uh, I don't want to get too deep in yeah. physiology, but the the markers that we use for resuscitation are kind of surrogates for what we really want to measure, which is really how we affect oxygen delivery yeah. to the tissues. So the big advancement that I hope is coming is direct monitoring of tissue oxygenation. Mm. And if anyone wants to go deep on that, that like, we can talk about there's that. Like, there's like, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think, because this is when I was, remember a class that I did on kind of brain brain pharmacology and things like this, for example, uh -huh. when they do, it's very hard to understand brain chemistry and brain biology, especially in humans. But mm -hmm. there's, there was something where they would able to actually like put in a catheter somehow into the brain and see the live what the chemical changes and things are going on. Is that kind of what... Uh, I don't know about the chemicals, uh, but, yeah. but also the oxygenation, yes. So that, that actually has been pioneered a little bit in, in, in neurology critical yeah. care, right? Because you could imagine, let's say, you know, somebody has a stroke and you... Why, why do they have a stroke? Well, basically, because they have a stroke be, uh, because there was a uh, decrease in oxygen supply. There's mm -hmm. a decrease in oxygen supply because there's a decrease in blood supply, right? Mm -hmm. That causes the stroke. So part of uh, treating the stroke is improving oxygen yeah. delivery. Yeah. How do we know we're improving oxygen delivery? Well, we, you know, we want to make sure someone's got a good blood pressure. We want to mm -hmm. make sure that their hemoglobin is well saturated. Yeah. Maybe we want to know directly what their cardiac output mm. is. But all these are markers. What we really mm. want to do is like have a catheter in the brain, or in my world, more like in the kidney, mm -hmm. and know if I've improved the oxygen delivery to that tissue, because that's what I really, yeah. want, really want to do. That's that's the thing that I want to yeah. change. Meanwhile, blood pressure and, and all that is just a sort of surrogate marker. Yeah. And jumping back earlier, we're going from clinical to things. This poem, I just remember that poem crit care thing you mentioned. Yeah. Why is that? Can you tell me that story? Why is yeah, it's really interesting. Have to do poem crit care? So as I mentioned, that's a critical care. Yeah. Remember, and I see ICUs weren't really invented to the late 1950s. They were out, they were outgrowths of the operating room. Wow. Right, because you know the first ventilator. Were they the PACU? I guess. Yeah. Right. Wow. Uh, the first ventilators were like the uh, iron lungs, yeah. which worked on negative pressure. And that was solely for people with polio. It mm. doesn't work for other <laughs> indications. Uh, that wasn't really an ICU, right? Um, but, you know, the ICU developed because of the technology that developed, right? Mm. So you had the ventilator, right? You could now do operations oh, with people asleep and yeah. not breathing on their own, uh -huh. right? <clears throat> Excuse me. And some of them still needed to be on the ventilator when the operation was over. Where did they go? <laughs> right? <laughs> Special package. No. Right. So they went to a place that was staffed by anesthesiologists, uh -huh. right? And some of them may still be in shock. And some of them may still be in shock for a couple of days. So who's going to take care of them? Well, probably that anesthesiologist, you know, uh, who's there. The other, yeah. the other, the other, uh, 
place where ICU came from is from cardiology, uh -huh. right? So we, as as the number of interventions in cardiology started to increase with catheterization, yeah. you needed a place to put these people after their interventions. Mm. So the cardiologists would come. I see. But these people didn't really think of themselves as intensivists. Yeah. They thought about themselves as anesthesiologists or uh -huh. cardiologists sort of taking care of yeah, critically yeah, yeah. ill patients. Then the technologies, you know, the number of ventilators exploded mm -hmm. and you're like creating rooms full of people yeah. on ventilators and you got to have somebody who takes care of those yeah. people. So the old model was like, well, you know, uh, who, who, uh, who knows something about breathing? Oh, pulmonologists <laughs> and anesthesiologists. So they would come in in the morning and see their patients on the ventilator, go back to their clinic and see patients in the clinic wow. and then maybe come back in the afternoon and the whole place would be run by nurses. I see. Or maybe the unlucky house staff Got person it. who would secret and not know would know it. Right? So and then over the years we're like, whoa, like this is becoming there's so much stuff here to learn. There's so much knowledge that we need to create a sort of specialty in it. And then later the idea that you could just make a job out of that sort of came later. In the United States, um the uh be probably because of the centrality of the ventilator to critical yeah. care, pulmonologists sort of latched onto that. They realized that, hey, uh, we're being called in to do this anyway, and they sort of created this idea of certification in critical mm -hmm. care, and that became the major pathway to board certification in critical care was mm -hmm. through a combined pulmonary fellowship. In Europe, the primary, primary um, pathway towards intensive care is anesthesiology. Mm. Interesting. So do they do, I guess their specialization is like anesthesia critical care? Yeah, exactly. Ah. Exactly right. Uh, and that's still the case in most surgical ICUs in, in the United States. But in the medical ICUs, it's usually an internist pulmonologist or an internist like myself, yeah. uh, critical care. So before ICUs, when people were really, really sick, were they just on, like, were there three floors? Because I think of three, there was just one floor, I guess. Yeah, what were you going to do differently? And then, like yeah, in 1930, yeah. like you had someone coming in with uh, respiratory failure yeah. for pneumonia. What were you going to do? <laughs> Give him a nurse that's with them. <laughs> well, only. I, I mean, don't I don't, I don't even think you had oxygen uh, reliably to provide, right? So the the care of that patient looked like the care of the less sick patient you would now have on the floor. Oh, wow! So it is especially born of technological yeah. advancements, rather than say. You know, nephrologists, there was always a kidney. Mm -hmm. Although, actually, I would say, you know, nephrology probably became more of a specialty when the dialysis machine was invented. That's really interesting. I right. never think about that, right. the technology driving the creation oh, yeah, absolutely. of absolutely. specialties. 100%, right? You think of, um, what's another example? I, I, I mean... Um, the nephrology dialysis, that, I mean, that's crazy. Right. You know, the gastroenterologist, as you mentioned, uh -huh. right? Right? I mean... There were there were internists who were always interested in gastroenterology. Yeah. They never would have identified themselves as gastroenterologists, ah. right? But then, you know, along the way, you had more and more knowledge about gastroenterology. You know, probably people writing textbooks mm -hmm. just on gastroenterology, mm -hmm. and then the endoscope. the endoscope comes along, wow. and now now you have a procedure. Uh. So now you have to you have a, a, a procedure that you have to become competent in, right? This is how this is how guilds this are cool. built, right? So that's how that's how specialties evolve, you know. That's really that's really cool. So let's say 
I'm a medical student, right? And I'm not really sure if I want to do critical care or not critical care. Let's say, yeah, critical care. Let's say I'm already thinking about critical care, mm-hmm. uh, maybe as a medical student or maybe even as a resident. Mm-hmm. How do I decide that I want to do, the critical care should be the specialty for me. I should go and this should be my life. Should I do more shadowing? Should I do more research? What's the best way to go about deciding for me? Well, I think in all of your, all of the primary, and I say the sort of core yeah. residencies, and I'm talking about surgery, pediatrics, uh, and uh, medicine, mm-hmm. right? Um, you will have exposure to uh, ICU. Yeah, so you'll, you'll get some taste of it got there. It. Um, and... You know, and if there's, you know, if there's a a signal that yeah. you may like, like yeah. then you you could you probably do some more rotations yeah. there, start to talk to people about it. Got it. Yeah. And as the director of mm-hmm. uh, this this fellowship program, if I'm a resident mm-hmm. or even if I'm a medical student, and I want to be the most competitive as possible, mm-hmm. I want you to look at my application and say, you know what, this guy, we got to have him. We got to <laughs> put him at the top of our rank list. What should I do? Uh, well, I guess a lot of it's generic. Got Just it. work hard, yeah. read a lot, yeah. get good or good yeah. letters of recommendation, yeah. be a good person, yeah. <laughs> you know, be yeah. be a good doctor, <laughs> and that and that will come through. Uh, you know, research. Every, I have my own take on that. A lot of medical students are obsessed with like, you know, how many publications do I have? And I think perhaps I, I'm an internist. I don't know. If this is. Perhaps if you're applying for neurosurgery uh, residency, you know that makes a difference. Um, to me, what I want to see is just a scholarly attitude, and that can that can manifest in different ways. That you can things you produce. I mean, this is a kind of a scholarly in a, in a way, right? It is you're, you're showing that you, there's something you're interested in something other than just that patient in front of you. You're interested in something bigger. And so when I look at scholarly potential, it's more that rather than, oh, you know, you had five posters and two abstracts and Mm, stuff like that. Got it. So it's kind of showing this. I'm not sure all fellowship directors feel the same way, but that's what I look for. No, it's it's a helpful answer. And it's, you know, we'll put this out to the applicants next year and they'll (laughs) they'll all be starting YouTube channels and and then they'll be doing their (laughs) things. The next question I had is just more general advice because the career of medicine, the career of healthcare isn't the easiest field, right? We work kind of hard. We have long hours. um, We go through a ton of training. Do you have any general advice for medical students or people entering the healthcare field to have kind of a good life? I guess it's a big question, but uh, anything, in, it could be lifestyle, it could be finances, it could be anything, relationships, what, anything at all. I'm definitely not going to give relationship yeah. advice. <laughs> um, well, I think I'd start by saying that, you know, medicine is, is great. I, I think sometimes medical students will run into people who are, are not happy in their career, unfortunately. I'm sure that happens in anything, but um, most of us, I think, believe that we are so blessed and lucky to be in this opportunity. So that's number one. Don't, for, don't, don't, forget. don't, don't forget that. I mean, um, number two, I think, you know, there's this debate about, well, do you follow, you know, follow your passion or make some sort of calculations based on other things. And I, I like this stew analogy because I don't think it's an either or. Um, personally, I think it's very important for students to remember that even in any given specialty, the balance of work life 
can change, you know, is, is so heterogeneous based, based upon particular practice setting. Um, you know, as far as residency goes, they're all probably some, you know, a general surgery residency is probably like a general surgery mm -hmm. resident. But as far as what is going to be like to be a general surgeon or an obstetrician, it can, it varies so much. It's almost like, I don't know how much weight to give to that. Yeah, I see. And to me personally, um, you have to do something that you find compelling because I, I don't know. I certainly could be. I, I don't think you're going to be happy if you're not enjoying the thing. Yeah. You might still be unhappy <laughs> yeah. for other reasons, yeah. but uh, you're definitely not going to be happy if you're not enjoying the thing you're doing. No, that makes complete sense. And then you're a, you're a big writer. I'm a, are you a big reader as well? Mm -hmm. You're a big reader. Do you have any books that you can recommend? This could be to uh, people entering. I Some pe think books people mentioned in the past. The House of God, yeah. uh, When Breath Becomes Air. Right. Um, there was another book by the same guy that wrote one of the, the, the whatever, they wrote about his surgical kind of checklist and things like that. Oh, Atul Gawande. Atul Gawande, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Any books that... I love those all, yeah. all of them books. Yeah. So, okay, so to the uh, humanities major yes. that is like deciding that they don't want to become an English PhD <laughs> and thinking about a career in medicine, read uh, Somerset's uh, mom's uh, Human Bondage. In Human Bondage? Somerset's mom. Somerset's Mom. We'll link it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just the idea. I mean, to me, that was uh, of human bondage. That's yeah. It. I, I mean, it's an old book. Yeah. It's kind of antiquated in some ways, but that was like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, this, this is what, like, you know, if you're a humanist kind of yeah. guy and why you should be a doctor, that one. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, if you're a resident, another one, and you, I think every resident should read this, is uh, Abraham Verghese's In My Own Country, which is a story. In My Own Country. Right. Well, for of human bondage takes place mm -hmm. in like the 1920s, I believe, and it's basically I'm writing these about, about, right about, about, about a young person finding themselves uh -huh. and uh, th through medicine, I think, wow. and a lot of other things. Um, uh, Verghese's "In My Own Country" was written in the early 1990s, mm -hmm. and it was uh, about uh, uh, Verghese's experience taking care of patients with HIV in rural Tennessee. It was really interesting because he's a foreign med. He was a foreign medical graduate, and then you know doing a J one visa, it got plop plopped into Eastern Tennessee, and started seeing uh, really you know some of the earliest cases of HIV, and a, a lot of these, a lot of his patients were gay men who had left. Tennessee, right? Mm. Because they weren't accepted as yeah. gay men, went to New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, got infected, got sick, came home. And he, he talks about that experience. It's just like, it's, one, it's an amazing historical um, representation yeah. of the early days of the HIV epidemic, which I think every current medical student mm. needs to know something about. And also it's just an amazing story. Yeah, yeah. Something I for completely forgot to ask, and I can't believe I didn't ask write this in one of my question lists is COVID. Mm. Right? You you, oh, yeah. you have you have been, <laughs> we do a separate epi yeah. episode on COVID. I just I guess the one question I have, and then again you can expand on this in any way, shape, or form, because you were at the front lines here, mm -hmm. right? When this whole craziness has been happening. I guess the question I have is how has your practice changed? And we don't have to get into specifics around kind of medicine and things like this, but how has your practice and maybe the way you practice medicine changed since this whole pandemic? Well, I think it's 
gotten back to where it was yeah, mostly. Um, I think. <laughs> and if you have anything you want to talk about the whole COVID thing at all, I mean, well, I, I mean, it was a, yeah. it was look when yeah. I'm like on my on my doddering around yeah. with my grandchildren. Hopefully, please God, yeah. Um, I'll be talking about COVID, yeah. right? Uh, There's a lot of the ways, like Abraham Vergeese will be talking yeah. about the early days of the yeah. HIV epidemic. It was a, uh, you, you had this feeling that you were, you know, living history, right? Um, and uh, so that, that <laughs> I don't want to put it the wrong way. It was scary yeah. and exciting at yeah. the same time. Yeah, no. Of course, I always joke like if the pandemic went on for like three months, it would have been awesome. It just went on a little bit too long. <laughs> like we were at the center of attention. Yeah. It was really exciting. It was yeah. a, new, a new disease. Yeah. Like how often is there like a totally new yeah. disease? Uh, everyone was writing. Everyone was like, I mean, I was like, I remember in 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 March, like literally calling up ICU doctors at NYU in New York as they were getting their first patients and we had in our first patient, and I was like, what's it like? What are you doing? I was like, I, I, I would never pick up the phone and just call a random yeah. doctor. Anyway, that's, but that's what we're doing. So there was this like, again, it was, you were part of history. Um, but it was also, it was also scary, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, cause I definitely don't want to diminish the, the, the human tragedy yeah. of it. I mean, I remember, having a, I mean literally so normally I say at Jefferson we have 17 ICU beds yeah and I'd say on a normal day like four or five of them are on a ventilator got it yeah at the height of COVID every single bed was someone on a ventilator wow. and we had overflow up into the next ICU Jeez. and they not only were on ventilators half of them were on dialysis wow and Another sixty percent were on vasopressors. Wow. I mean, it was the sickest bunch of patients I've ever taken care of. Wow. And sometimes it felt like there was not much you could do for them. Mm, and the beginning, right? yeah, and I was taking care of people that were not any older than myself. Uh, addition and additionally to a lot of older people, but young, healthy people and. That was really, really emotional and scary. And the patient, the families weren't allowed to come into the ICU, mm -hmm. which was like, that was end of life situations where people, people were allowed to come in and look through the glass at their dying spouse. I mean, that was pretty horrible. Crazy. Did you, do you think it's a, it's, a, have you learned any lessons? Have you taken mm. anything from it that you're going to, that you're going to apply going forward? Well, I mean, I I learned, learned I learned some more stuff about how to manage a patient with yeah. ARDS. <laughs> and we we learned yeah. we we learned some interesting things. I think about lung physiology. Yeah. Um, we I think we learned the the uh, benefits and pitfalls of how we create scientific knowledge in real time. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, this was the first. I don't want to say it was the first YouTube disease. It was the first uh, what, what was Zoom, Zoom, yeah, it was, yeah. In a sense, even like even, even yeah. in medicine, right? You had all these like people were just like you know, oh, I had a patient and I'm going to write it up and put it out there. Yeah. And I had two patients, I'm going to create a case <laughs> series. And and you know, I did this and they got better. So maybe like this is a thing. Yeah. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Like and people were publishing what you call preprint articles. So mm. like. Uh, a manuscript is under review. I mean, preprint, I think the idea of 
preprint publication was already out there, mm. but it like took off with. Is this me- before like peer review? Like exactly. So you have it. an you have an article, you submitted it to the journal of whatever. Yeah. It's under under review. Yeah. So it hasn't even been peer reviewed yet. It may not even be published, yeah. accepted, but you put it up on some sort of server. Now, on the one hand, that's great because because yeah. the peer review process takes a while, yeah. and if you got really important information. Yeah. I want to know it yeah. now, right? This is happening in real time. Yeah. On the other hand, then you had to go. Then you had to go back and sort of like separate the you know, the crap from the yeah. good stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So, and there was, you know, obviously people are aware of the different disinformation and stuff that was out there. So, so I think that was what something we learned about scientific knowledge mm-hmm. and how. And it, and the other thing was it was worldwide. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't right. So everyone, you're like reading stuff from China and from Italy, and right. So, uh, so the next pandemic, yeah. well, <laughs> you'll be ready, right? So that that was very interesting. Uh, did what you? I, sorry to interrupt, but did you? It seems the numbers. So I was looking at the Medscape numbers on happiness and burnout, specifically EM doctors and critical care doctors. It seems their numbers jumped maybe 15 percent of self-reported burnout. Did you feel any more burnout or burnout at any time during this pandemic? I'd like to joke that I, I gained a couple of pounds yeah. because of all the uh, cake from the going away parties at the nurses. I think there were <laughs> there was a lot of turnover. I, I mean, I think it brought um, it brought some things to to a head yeah. um, in people that were I, I don't know what the word is pre burnout, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, I mean, look, at the beginning of the pandemic, it, again, I don't want to minimize this. Yeah. It was a horrible, horrible time. But in some ways, it was a great time to be an intensive care doctor. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, people were banging pots and pans yeah. outside for us when we walked home, right? And, you know, I... I <laughs> uh, it's almost I, like going to war, it felt yeah, like exactly. a little bit. It, it, it felt like 100%, people coming together. 100%. And, like, I would tell you, like... The food that got sent in every night was like a bar mitzvah every night in in the ICU. Uh, enormous spirit of collaboration and right. Um, and then there was this like letdown as it as it dragged on. And uh, you know, twenty twenty was also a pretty tumultuous year in American life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, people used to ask me, Dave, how are you doing with? The ho- and I said, like, the hospital's fine. It's the rest of the country that <laughs> is making me depressed. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Right? So, um, I, I, but I, I can't separate. That yeah. was like George Floyd, the election. Yeah. Like, in my mind, they're all kind of, uh-huh. like, Co- roll, roll, roll up together. And I think, so there was definitely a malaise that... that mm-hmm. And But you never think you got to the burnout point, or do you think you were? I think the problem, I guess my one problem with burnout is that it's a very nonspecific term. It means a lot of different things. I see. You know? Um, If someone asked you on a I'm not doubting its existence, but the problem I have when we're talking about burnout is like, it's like dizzy. Yeah. Like the patient says, I'm dizzy. Yeah. Like, what yeah. I can mean, like, six different things by dizzy. Seven neurologists just had a stroke when they said that, so it's good, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, it's like, what? right? Yeah. Do you mean, like, and I think burnout is similar. How do we, what, do we what, should, what should we do with it? What should be the question we ask physicians? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I just, there's, some, there's something I notice that I, I feel like sometimes... It, burnout is a syndrome, obviously, has many different causes yeah. and many different manifestations. Yeah. And all I'm saying is I think sometimes when we say, oh, I was burned out, yeah. I'm like, 
well, okay, tell me more. What exactly does that mean? Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you not finding enjoyment? Is it just the is in your in your work anymore? Is it the particular work situation that yeah. you're in? Um, is it the hours? Is it the pay? Yeah. Is it what? What is it? Right? Um, is it stuff at home? Yeah. Is it the combination of yeah. both? So I just I just think it's hard because it's a little bit imprecise. Very general. So it's, yeah. it's kind of the, the theme earlier. What right. I was asking you, you know, should right. we do? What is the proper term? Physician aided. Physician aided. Aid and dying. Aid and dying. Yeah. Okay, I know aid and dying. <laughs> so let's get more general. Let's get even back into Doctor Oxman's life. If you were speaking to your 18-year-old self, <laughs> would you give him any advice? Uh, 18-year-old self? Wow. Maybe I could talk better to my 20. Or, if I, or <laughs> even the, fir- the first year of medical school self. Okay, let's do that one first. Yeah. Um, well, what I would say, I was acutely aware of this because I was 29 yeah. and yeah. I'd done other things. I was so thrilled to be in medical school. I would just say say to first year medical students like this is just an enormous privilege that you have, and if you don't see that, maybe this isn't the right mm-hmm. thing for you. Mm-hmm. It's just in so many ways. Not only are you going to have an exciting and uh, remunerative career, but you're also viewed in such high esteem by most of society. Still, you have just a special place in like people's imagination as a doctor. So. Just remember the privilege mm. um, and chill out a little bit. You know, that's like <laughs> I know one. it's all right. Sc- uh, med school selects for a yeah. certain type, right? Um, you know, it's it's mostly all going to be okay. Um. And it's a, I, and people say that all the time. And I think when I was a first, second year med student, I was like, please stop telling me that. Like, like I don't believe it. Right. Like, I'm dying here. I'm I'm the, I am drinking from the fire hose. I'm doing all this. But as a fourth-year medical student, and as you, who's who's now accomplished in your career, I think it is true. It, yeah. These things really do work out, and they're saying it mm-hmm. as a specialty. And the second one is in general. Okay. So first one. Yeah. Do you have any closing words for people who are interested in critical care as a specialty? In terms of like whether it's right for them or how to be, how to do it. It's uh, I guess kind of saying like say they're a little bit interested into it. Okay. So I think I think there are certain things about like, I think these are broad generalities. Yeah. Like, you know, you take ophthalmology. Yeah. I'm sure there's like many different reasons why people want to maybe yeah. not many, but a couple of different yeah. <laughs> reasons why <laughs> so why <laughs> ophthalmology. Uh, one of the th- I think one of the um, sort of decisions you have to make, let's say you're an internist yeah. about a, a subspecialty is like um, sort of generalist versus, well, this is maybe even before specialty, generalist versus sort of subspecialist, mm. right? Like I always thought, Zach, that I was going to be a general internist. My kind of heroes were like general internists, mm. like the wise it's, uh, generalists, mm-hmm. you know, as a long-term uh, relationships with patients and uh, is a great mm-hmm. diagnostician mm-hmm. as well as is a great human. Mm. Um, believe it or not, one of the things that I like about critical care, and I think it's what has drawn me to critical care amongst other things, is I'm still a generalist. Mm. Like my knowledge on a lot of things is a mile wide and an inch deep. I still, as an internist, as an intensivist, I have to know a bit about everything. Right from rheumatological disease to trauma, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I like that, right? I like that. Some people don't like that at all. Mm. 
intensivists has been called the primary care doctors of the critically ill because <laughs> I'm the one coordinating. I'm the one who knows a bit about everything. I'm the one who's making diagnoses yep. and then linking them. So I think in some in some cases you have to ask yourself, you know, are you a little bit more of a generalist or are you a little bit more of a specialist? Some fields let you do both, right? Like, you know, gastroenterology yeah. even lets you do, you, you could be like a advanced endoscopist mm -hmm. and spend all day in the ERCP lab or you can be the the more generalist gastroenterologist. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's one thing you should look at. Got it. Um, I think, you know, the other thing is, you know, I, the other thing I love about critical care, you know, uh, it's one of those specialties where I, I get to stand around and blab and think a lot mm -hmm. and get to do stuff yeah. like sort of materially, yeah. uh, physical. I, I, I like that, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm not a handy guy at all, but I really... Don't build sheds and things No, like no, I'm, I'm like pretty terrible. <laughs> that hand, you know, because I've been trained... You, you think I might be, right? Because <laughs> if you walked into the ICU and see me doing certain procedures yeah. and things like that, it's just because I've been trained. Mm. It? And I get a certain satisfaction out of that. Mm. But I but I would not want to do just that. I wouldn't just want to be a, a technician. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. And so I love that combination. Um, it's very, very important for me. So that's something you should think about. Uh, you know, you also have to think about how you work in sort of pressured situation for some people the idea of taking care of you know po patients who are at risk of dying is a something that would repel them and it's a little bit of a weird thing to say As that a I, was, doctor, yeah. I was drawn to that but i i definitely was drawn to the idea of like oh this stuff you know this interaction really matters like mm -hmm. you know the difference i'm making sometimes can be between life and death disability and not so that that was you know you have to figure out if you that's something that that's may something may that may 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 appeal to you, um, yeah. yeah. And then in general, any closing words in general. This could be from the ethics professional. This could be from the writer. This could be from <laughs> Jeez, the, uh, the the you know not deciding on medicine until you were twenty eight, twenty nine years old. Anything at all. Well, I guess this could be kind of general, but let's let's make it also specific to the uh, medical student worrying about what they're going to go into. Yeah. I, I strongly believe that it's not the choice between like eternal happiness and eternal misery. Like, oh God, if I get this one wrong, <laughs> I'm destined to like be just miserable. I yeah. think there are several different, many different ways to be happy. It's not necessarily either or there mm -hmm. are probably different different ways to be happy so if you're yeah. one of these people is torn between radiology and psychiatry yeah those people exist so, you know <laughs> <That's amazing. laughs> remember that you know people are complex and 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 you will find your way in no matter what you choose so don't don't necessarily worry too much about that and and one specialty doesn't necessarily lead you to misery if you've chosen the yeah. wrong one. But then also don't be afraid to change. And you're like, I went off the path. I had mm. to create my own pathway. And now they're, they're fellowships combining infectious disease and critical care. They yeah. really weren't when I was. And so don't be afraid to go off the path uh, a bit too. It, it can be hard because it's always easier to stay on the path. But uh, now this is sounding like really something no, like no, general advice. No, no, no. But, but, 
But uh, you know, if you if your heart is calling you to go off the path, yeah, go for it. Take a look at your stew. I love the <laughs> stew thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was fantastic. Well, this has been fantastic. Do you have any plugs? Do you want to put your Twitter, your Instagram, no, your YouTube not, channel, your uh, podcast <laughs> that's releasing in February? I need to get more social media <laughs> connections, and I don't, unfortunately. Well, this has been fantastic, Doctor Oxman. Thank you so much for coming, Zach. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Perfect.